Taking up your cross, suffering and sacrificing have been superseded with name it and claim it. And as dark as I know it looks out there, the good news is that God is advancing his kingdom. And it's very exciting to be a part of his great commission. It's Sheila Zelensky. The Sheila Zelensky Show, the only show to give you the truth behind the headlines, prophecy, and the deeper things of God. Now. Here is your host, and time watchwoman, Sheila Zelinsky. Hello, listeners, and welcome to this Monday, May 11th edition of the Sheila Zelinsky Show. Happy belated Mother's Day to all you moms out there. A blessing to all of you. I was supposed to have Chris Putnam stop by today, but due to some scheduling conflicts, I wasn't able to have him on today, but he will be dropping by this week. And folks, today my guest, well, he's my favorite climatologist, Dr. Timothy Ball. He is the author of The Deliberate Corruption of Climate Science. Dr. Ball is a highly qualified and experienced academic with an expertise in historical climatology who rejects most of the current hysteria around climate change and global warming. He's one of my favorites, and it's a pleasure to have him back on the program. Dr. Tim Ball, welcome back. Well, thanks again for the opportunity, Sheila. So lucky to be able to help people understand what is going on in the science community and how it's being used for political agenda. One of the reasons, of course, that I'm so much attacked is because they can't say I'm not qualified and I have an ability to explain things in a way that people can understand. And I believe very, very firmly that if you have a, a God-given talent and you don't use it, that's tantamount to sin. So uh, for giving me the opportunity to use those abilities, I really appreciate it. Well, as I put in the acknowledgement section of my book, one of the things I love about you, Tim, is that you, despite all things, I mean, I would have not spent three years crafting my book without the faithful encouragement and contribution of you, Tim. Your mentorship and brilliance means the world to me. You're really the only person I know whose relentless search for the truth is you can take a lot of very complex climatological data and present it in a way that even a small child can understand. And I think that is a tremendous gift. And one of the things that I am so stunned about, especially this last I would say the last year, Tim, is the stunning fact, and this is what I want to get into today, that the Vatican, I guess you could say, is really the biggest duck in the pond in all of these very nefarious shenanigans. And one of the stunning things we recently came across was a document called 
climate change and the common good. It's a statement of the problem and the demand for not just a solution, Tim, but a transformative solution. Were you stunned when you saw this document? Well, yes and no. I mean, I'm, I'm stunned in how blatant uh, this current pope is with regard to this. But I'm not stunned in the sense of something you and I have talked about on many occasions, and that is the church does not represent Christianity. The church is, is a political vehicle and has been used throughout history for that purpose. And of course, it constantly distracts from Christianity. The church is one of the reasons that so many people give up on Christianity. And it's not just the Catholic Church, it's, it's all churches. Because the minute you have an idea, and we've discussed this, we won't go into it in great detail, but the minute you have an idea, such as Christianity, then that idea needs dissemination, and that dissemination requires a structure. And structures are rigid, and people that run them become rigid in pursuing and maintaining the structure rather than disseminating the idea of Christianity. So from that point of view, it doesn't surprise me at all. The other thing is that um, with this particular pope, it doesn't surprise me because of his background. I mean, one of the things that you and I have discussed is how the dialectic that is, our ideas and the way we see the world are a function of where we're raised and how we're raised and what time period. And this pope coming out of Argentina and um, working very commendably in the slums of Argentina, but it turned him into um, a Marxist. It turned him into somebody who believes that you know inequality is uh, unacceptable and, and has to be corrected at all costs. And so, of course, he's carried that over into his view of the world and having the power as the Pope to implement that. And of course, there's a lovely quote from Shakespeare in Measure to Measure, in which he says, it's one thing to have the power of a giant. It's another thing to abuse that power of a giant. Yeah. And it is so true with what, what this particular Pope is doing. You know, I was thinking as you were talking, he's if he's such a proponent, Tim, of no spending and, and to not have any material wealth, why doesn't he start selling off some of the Vatican properties? Well, you know, that, that's a very, very important point. And I'll tell you a true story. Why do I have to say that? I'm, I'm going to tell you a story. I wouldn't tell you anything but the truth, right? Why do we have to exactly. say that? It's kind of it's, it's an interesting reflection on the society in which we live. But anyway, Ed and, and Lil Kustra lived next door to us, a couple of doors over in, when we were in Winnipeg. And Lil worked for Calm Air, the Northern Airlines. And one year she won a free trip with her husband to go to um, anywhere in the world they wanted. And being Ukrainian Catholics, they decided they wanted to go to Rome. And they went to Rome, and they came back and quit Catholicism. And the reason that they gave was they said, look, every Sunday in church, they're passing the collection plate for Rome. And he said, we go there, and, and we look at all the wealth and, and the statues and the art and the jewelry that they have. You say, well, you know, what, why are you asking us for money? You've got all the money in the world. The Pope's got his own summer palace. Why does he need a summer palace? Now, I will give this Pope some credit. He has 
disavowed himself of some of the things. For example, he got rid of the Pope mobile and, and he's done some token things like that. But they're really just token. And one of the things that's interesting is that I think that he has created a deflection. I won't say a deception, but a deflection by taking the name Francis, suggesting that he's a Franciscan when in fact he's a Jesuit who are the strictest adherents of the Catholic Church's rules and regulations, not Christianity's rules and regulations, the Catholic Church's rules and regulations. But he took the name Francis, I suspect, because Francis, St. Francis of Assisi, did exactly what you're saying. He was extremely wealthy, and he literally gave it all away and spent his life preaching, wandering around in bare feet and a brown robe. And of course, the Franciscan monks and priests today wear those same brown robes in reflection of that. So I think this is all part of the confusion in his mind between what Christianity is all about and what the church is all about and about playing politics with it all. Does it, being a former Catholic and being a person who's so astute to this agenda, did it surprise you, Tim, really, when you found out that the Pope is issuing this year this mass encyclical? Because an encyclical really is, it's essentially saying, hey, all you Catholics, you're going to be doing this. And I mean, it is a huge thing when a Pope issues an encyclical. So did it surprise you, really? No, not at all. Because, of course, what, what the Pope represents is the church. And that throughout history, and I've studied it extensively, is a long way removed from Christianity. When the Pope is telling Christians what to think, I mean, one of the first examples of, of it that I had with regard to uh, climate change and global warming was when I was contacted by various religious groups, for example, Catholic parishioners in Scotland, who were outraged that their bishop had told the priests to preach about global warming from the pulpit. And their reaction was, hey, surrender unto Caesar. That's not the priest's role to be to be preaching to me about that. And so I, I've seen these sorts of things. I've also looked at what triggered the Martin Luther revolution. And of course, what it was, was the complete abandonment of any principles of Christianity within the church. It's funny, but interesting little things occur, for me anyway, and I think for a lot of people, you're looking at something and suddenly it triggers another thought. For example, I was looking at the word nepotism. And of course, nepotism is when you hire relatives and friends just as Obama's doing with his corporate cronyism. And so you buy off or pay off or you cover up your own sins. So I'm looking at the word nepotism and I discover that it's actually a Latin word for nephew. Now, where did this come from? Well, in the Middle Ages, popes were having children all over the place. So what they did was their illegitimate children, their quotes unquote nephews, were brought into the church and given jobs and given positions. And that started me thinking about how corrupt the structure of the church represented by Rome actually is. And then I followed that up. There was a thing going around in the 70s about what do you call an organization where the headquarters are in Italy, they've got lieutenants all over the world, they're enormously powerful, very, very wealthy, 
And what do you call that? And the answer was, well, you have a choice. It's either the mafia or the Catholic Church, right? And, and so they're both feudal organizations starting out of Rome, which is, of course, where the church really started to go wrong. I mean, certainly when Peter was, this is my rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. But from there on, you're moving away from the ideal. It's very important to what's going on here. Now, ironically, of course, that's what Darwin was talking about. It's the adaptability, the survival of the fittest. But ironically, modern environmentalists, although they profess to be Darwinists and say, oh, yeah, survival of the fittest and so on, don't practice it at all. In fact, what they do is they say that humans are, who are the most adaptable are the fittest. They say, no, we're failures. We shouldn't be here. There are, there are too many of us. It reflects what I was implying in my earlier comments, that the church is secular. It's about the politics of the world. It's not about belief and, and Christianity. I go back to George Bernard Shaw, who was not particularly a nice person either, but he was a realist, when he said that the Christianity is the greatest thing in the world. It's just a pity nobody ever tried it. <laughs> and, and it is so true of the Catholic Church. Think about, here's an organization where you are practicing the most unnatural thing in the world, and that is celibacy. When you look at the things that the church has said and done over time, it really is playground for the devil. It's got the power. It's got the moral, uh, the moral authority that it claims. As I said, the idea that, that men and women should be celibate when the whole purpose of men and women and different sexes is to, to have children. Yeah. And, then, and then they're telling uh, people what they can and can't do. I mean, what a joke. joke Not only have they completely it. taken procreation and spun yep. it on its head now because with this whole homosexual agenda, but yep. what's really stunning is even now today in the news, Tim, being a girl is about to become optional as Girl Scouts now accept boys and transgender because nothing yep. says Girl Scouts like having a boy in your group. So the girls basically used to pledge to serve God and country, but they removed the word God years ago, Tim. And I'll give you a hint, people. Look around at what's happening in the world. When you take God out of society, this is what happens. Now you've got transgender bathrooms all over the place. You know, forget the little, you know, those old little symbols on the bathroom doors, a man and a woman. Now you've actually got the transgendered symbol, which is a half a skirt and then the leg. ones. It's so ridiculous. But what I want to do but, is I want to springboard into this Pontifical Academy of Sciences and the Pontifical Academy of Social Sciences prepared by a group. Again, this is out of the Pontifical Academy. Now, what's stunning about this is that, I mean, there's a lot of stunning things, but one of the things I want to get into is the declaration. Now, I've printed out a copy of this. I, I suspect at some point this could be swept from the internet because I mean the, the things in it are are largely stunning to me but this is what it says and I, I'm quoting this and I want your take on this Tim it says in this little declaration it says unsustainable consumption coupled with a record human population and the uses of inappropriate technologies are usually linked with the destruction of the world's sustainability and resilience widening inequalities of wealth, there's that word again, and income 
the worldwide distribution of the physical climate system and the loss, get this, David Suzuki would salivate him, the loss of millions of species that sustain life are the grossest manifestations of unsustainability. The continued extraction of coal, oil and gas, following the business as usual mode, will soon create grave risks for the generations yet unborn. Climate change resulting largely from unsustainable consumption by about 15% of the world's population has become a dominant moral and ethical issue for society. There's still time. There's still time to mitigate unmanageable climate changes and repair ecosystem damages provided we reorient. Here's the, the kicker, folks. Provide we dramatically reorient our attitude towards nature. Climate change is a global problem whose solution will depend on our stepping beyond national affiliations and coming together for the common good. And it goes on from there. But what is really stunning is it says religious institutions can and should take the lead in bringing about the changes in attitude towards creation. What's stunning to me is that's just the declaration. We'll get into the goals in a minute. But so far, what are your thoughts on that declaration, Tim? Well, of course, it's the whole Agenda 21 of the United Nations uh, set out from a religious perspective. It's exactly the same message. But it also, the critical thing to, to understand with this, both in terms of your comments about transgender and uh, all of these things, is that one of the ways that you get control of people is you, that you blur the lines, that you, you get people so that they're insecure, that they don't know where the limits are or what they're allowed to do, what they're not allowed to do from a Christian perspective. And, and of course, you are effectively wiping out the one thing that's so critically different about humans, and that is a morality, a conscience. And so all of these things are, are blurring the lines with completely false scientific information. The idea about overpopulation is, is uh, incorrect. The idea about uh, extinction of species is incorrect. But they know people don't know these things. And they know that if anybody dares to put their head up, like I do and like you do, then we're, it's very easy to marginalize us as uh, conspiracy theorists or deniers and all of these other things. Oh, wait, I'm a climate criminal, according to a website. <laughs> of course. You see, that's, that's the marginalizing, that you're uh, not to be believed because the majority don't agree with you, but they've got the, the majority so confused. And when you talk to people about the climate change issue, the majority of them will say, look, I, I don't understand enough. I, I'm really not sure. But then, of course, they're vulnerable to the other tactic that is used both by the political agenda of Agenda 21 and the uh, this religious agenda. And I use the term religious in a, in a false belief sense that you're very vulnerable to uh, having anything, any idea replace it. And so, again, blur the lines. Uh, create false information and and then isolate the people that dare to challenge it and and it's a, it's it's a standard procedure and you, as i said you see it both in the, in the science side 
and in in the religious side that it's going on on both ends and and of course one of the things that's interesting the connection people say well why would the pope get involved in all of this well we, we've already talked briefly about the pope and and his marxist uh, views of things and and the great equalization and then there was a very interesting visit to the vatican by john Kerry in september of 2014 he ostensibly went there to talk about the real religious conflict and morality conflict between the Christian world and the uh, Muslim world. And that battle, of course, has been going on for millennia. And he was supposedly there to talk about that. But in fact, what he was there to talk about was getting the Pope to sign on to the climate change issue as a vehicle for bringing about the kinds of changes that John Kerry and Agenda 21 and John Holdren want and the agenda that the Pope as a Marxist wants. There's a common ground there ideologically. Kerry, he's a duplicitous beyond belief because the family was actually born in Hungary under the name Kohn. He's Jewish. The family were Jewish when they were in Hungary. They emigrated to the United States but converted to Catholicism. It got them off the hook. And as you know, the anti-Semitism thing that uh, is, is so powerful, it got them off that hook. And then, of course, they became part of uh, the, one of the largest groups and powerful groups in the U.S., and that is the Irish Catholics. A lot of people think that Kerry is, is an Irish Catholic, and he isn't. These are the machinations that have been going on to combine uh, the whole environmental agenda as a religious agenda with the Catholic Church. And, and you've got... Uh, people that are, appear to be completely at odds and, 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 and really should be because, as you know, the Bible says that to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. Well, both Kerry and the Pope have blurred that line and, and crossed that line. This is why uh, this is all going on. What, what they don't realize, of course, is that they will literally are selling their souls to achieve their agenda but you and I know that in the end, if things don't work out, they'll turn on each other just uh, as they'll turn on anybody else. So so that's the connection and, and why the Pope is so involved in these things. And I say John Kerry and the White House is at the center of that. And of course, you see that Obama is saying that climate change is the most greatest threat to the world that there is. And it was interesting to listen to Carly Fiorina, the um, Republican candidate for president. And she said, look, I, I, I don't know whether the climate change issue is true or not. She said, it doesn't appear to be true, but I, I can't say that definitively. But she said to claim that it's, it's a greater threat than ISIS is, is absolute nonsense, especially in the short term. And so this is a confusion that, that it, all of this is creating for people. You did mention a few players there, but President Obama... Al Gore and other alarmists continue to prophesy man-made global warming crisis brought on by our unsustainable quote-unquote reliance on fossil fuels. Modelers like Mike McMahon and Gavin Schmidt conjure up illusory crisis scenarios based on the assumptions that carbon dioxide emissions now drive climate change. This is a trillion-dollar climate crisis industry self-serving echoes their claims. Now, here's the stunning thing in this 
this document that we're talking about today, Tim. And I'm going to quote this. Now, you are a climatologist. I'm going to read this to you. Now, this is, again, Pontifical Academy of Sciences. The aggressive exploitation of fossil fuels and other natural resources has damaged the air we breathe, the water we drink, and the land we inhabit. For instance, some 1,000 billion tons of carbon dioxide and other important greenhouse gases have already been accumulated in the atmosphere. Over the course of a relatively short time, the concentration of carbon dioxide, CO2, has increased, get this, Tim, by 40% and now exceeds the highest levels in at least the last million years. Comment on that, Tim. (laughs) Well, if that was a first-year paper in my climate class, I'd give it an F. (laughs) Um, And there are so many errors in that, and yet people can listen to that and say, oh, that sounds very official. They're they're actually giving numbers, you know, uh, the the amount of CO2 put into the atmosphere. But just, just to illustrate the point, they're saying that since the Industrial Revolution, humans have added that much CO2 to the atmosphere. And, and of course, you get into billions and it sound, it's just overwhelming. And so people say, oh, that's such a huge amount. Relative to the amount that nature puts into the atmosphere, it's minuscule. But here's the lie on which it's based. When the government was manipulated through the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change into demonizing CO2 as causing global warming, they came out and said that we put CO2 in the atmosphere and it stays there for a hundred years. Now that's called the residual time. In other words, if you put something into the atmosphere, how long does it stay there? So you put dust up. How, how long does it take for the dust to fall out or get washed out? You put CO2 into the atmosphere. How long does a molecule of CO2 stay in the atmosphere? Well, they came out and said, well, it's 100 years. That is, not, that is absolutely wrong. The, the maximum time that CO2 stays in the atmosphere is five to six years. So the implication in that statement they're making is, oh, well, you know, we're adding this at this and it's accumulating. Notice that word accumulating in there. It's not accumulating. But the other issue is, of course, that they're saying CO2 is, is a pollutant. The Environmental Protection Agency have got the U.S. Supreme Court to agree that it's a harmful substance. Well, tell that to the plants. Tell that to God that created Tell the that firmament. to God, exactly. The other thing is, if you want to say, well, in the last million years, well, let's, let's go back before that. Because over the last 300 million years, the current level, by the way, is of CO2 in the atmosphere, is they're claiming is 400 parts per million. Over the last 300 million years, the average has been 1,200 parts per million. So you can play that game of picking uh, the length of time of the record. And by the way, who produces that record that it's been very low for a million years? They produce it. They're the source of all this data. They create the data and then they cite it as accurate data. I mean, it's so incestuous that quote that you read, every single point of it I can refute and say, look, you, all you got to do is go and read the literature to find out that this is not correct. Well, one of the stunning things here is that, and here's always the word, fortunately, this is right out of the document, there is still time to mitigate climate change significantly 
and avert catastrophic consequences. Here's that word again that Al Gore loves is it's a climate catastrophe. They actually use the UN in this document. I thought, you know, at least they would have tried to hide that a little bit, but it's it's just blatant in your face. Yep, we're working lockstep with the UN. We have got to get this thing under control. Marx would have salivated at this document. Of course, and it's all about a universal belief system and a universal government and a universal control. That's what it's all about. There's that lovely old comment that that politics makes strange bedfellows. Well, I doubt that there's been stranger bedfellows, not not that the Catholic Church ever go to bed uh, because they're celibate, but this idea, and you see it with this current pope, where he's taking his Marxist ideas and then linking them with the one world government idea of Agenda 21. And I wrote an article pointing out that clearly the pope doesn't understand the atheistic get rid of God ideas of Agenda 21. From that point of view, they're completely at odds with each other. Or maybe the sad thing is they do know that they're at odds with each other. I think they are aware of this. I think they're devilish. It's convenient at this point to use the same vehicles to have control of people's minds. Now, if you want to look at an illustration of this, when when you got um, uh, communism in, in the Soviet Union, and of course they suppressed religion, they stamped out religion, but they never really did. All it did was it made people go underground and become more confirmed in their belief of the religion. And if you look at what happened in Poland with the church's role in overcoming communism in Poland, but who did the church hook up with? Lech Valencia, who was a union leader. You know, we're all going to be equal. It, the parallels all the way through this is it's all about control. It's all about equalization and so on. Just one point to flip back right to the beginning to tie some of this together. The common word that, that is in all of it is overpopulation. Of course, that there are too many people that we need to get rid of some of the people. Well, who decides who lives and dies? Well, you and I know that it's God that decides that. Can What's you happened? start with Prince Philip? Well, of course we can. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole point, isn't it? That, that these people are playing God. And it's one of the difficulties you have. And I've written about this extensively. If you eliminate God, as happened with Darwin's theory of evolution, say, you know, there is no God, then you're stuck with a problem. Well, it all started with the Big Bang. Well, then who put this material there for the Big Bang? Who triggered the Big Bang? And when you get rid of God, then you can say, well, okay, well, who put humans here? And who made humans so different from all the other animals? And these are issues that Darwin simply avoided. And he was challenged on it. You read The Origin of the Species, he doesn't mention human beings at all. Never mentions them. He avoids the issue completely. But what it leaves, of course, is a vacuum, and that's the kind of vacuum that so many people are in. But here's the interesting thing. They're opposed to development. They're saying, oh, we've got its fossil fuels and, and exploitation of resources by too many people, particularly uh, successful or wealthy people. That's the underlying message of that quote that you gave. But the evidence, real world evidence shows that once a country becomes developed, 
and the population, their wealth increases, their food supply security increases, the population declines. The reason that people have a lot of children in developing world and in history was because so many of the children were going to die. They knew that. And then you had to have enough children survive to become your pension plan. The worst thing that could happen to a family, I mean, I, I tell the story about Oliver Cromwell, who took, who got, you know, executed the king, Charles I. Oliver Cromwell was born into a family. I believe he was the ninth child. All of the family lived. Well, of course, they didn't expect that. So there was nothing left. There, there wasn't enough to, to share out amongst all the children. And I jokingly have said that Oliver Cromwell was so annoyed about that that he went and took over control of all of England. Said, I'll show you. And, and um, so the, the, this idea of having lots of children was because the children were to look after you in your old age. They were your security plan. Well, the minute that we got the security that development and the ability to produce more food and the ability to uh, reduce childbirth and all of these other good things given by God, then the birth rate goes down. It's called the demographic transition. And the listeners can look that up, just, just Google or Bing or whatever you want, De demographic transition. And, and the pattern is that, first of all, the birth rate starts to decline. Then the death rate starts to decline, and the population starts to increase, but then it levels off. And you end up with a situation, as is the case in many developed nations now, where the population is declining. To illustrate the idea from a scientific point of view, it's, uh, it's estimated that to just maintain the population, that is allowing for uh, infant mortality and so on, a family has to have 2.4 children per family. If you have lower than that on average, then the population will decline. When you go and look at Italy, you go and look at Japan, you go and look at Quebec, the population, the birth rate in those, in those regions is 1.3, 1.4. They're not even producing enough children to replace themselves. Now, it's covered over in many parts of the world, and we see the conflict that this is creating by migration. Some countries are allowing controlled migration simply to maintain their population in order to be able to maintain their economic structure. But in other parts of the world, uh, as we're seeing in Africa, the people fleeing into, into Europe uh, from North Africa right now, the migrations, these are, are uh, going on because of in inequality of opportunity. And that's the key word. And of course, with Italy, the native-born Italians, they're declining in numbers so rapidly and, and, of course, they, they really have to allow these migrants in just to do the work. The irony of it is that when you get development, which they're opposing and they're blaming fossil fuels and exploitation of resources on, but when you get development, you naturally achieve what you want, and that is a reduction in the, in the population. And, in fact, in, in, in some of those countries, for example, Italy, I mentioned Quebec, Quebec provide 
a, a financial incentive, as does Italy. Russia's got the same thing. They provide financial incentive to families to have extra children, to encourage them to increase the birth rate. And yet they're siding with all of this overpopulation nonsense through the UN. It's so contradictory. Now, one of the things, of course, that you see that happens with politics is immediately the biases and the, the uh, cronyism, uh, because what happens in Quebec is that it's only native-born, French-speaking Quebecers that get the bonus for having extra children. There's different ways that you can do things. It's, what's that old comment about several ways to skin a cat? For example, I'll just give you one quick example. They set up the European uh, Union, the economic common market, and so on. All right. Prior to that being set up, uh, France controlled the agriculture in Europe. They did it because they had the largest uh, agricultural uh, area and climatically suitable area. Germany was split. The agricultural portion of Germany that that, and of course, it's your ability to feed yourself that gives you power. But East Germany was the agricultural portion. Without that, West Germany couldn't sustain itself. It couldn't control what was going on in the European community in agriculture. So de Gaulle and the whole gang, they ran the whole show. And so it, West Germany, even though it's cost them an absolute fortune to take over and pay for the damage done by, by the communists in East Germany. They had to do it in order to get equal agricultural competition with, with France. And you see now that France, uh, in fact, Britain's economy this year passed France. That tells you how badly France is being run by the socialists. But, but back to my story about de Gaulle, they brought in tariffs. They said, okay, um, we're, we're going to get rid of tariffs. Uh, so if you want to bring butter from Denmark into France, you can do that. There won't be any tax on it to prevent it coming in or to make it uncompetitive with French butter. And the French farmers had to, had insisted on that, demanded that. So, but, but because France was part of the European community, they had to go along with it. So suddenly that tax is removed. But on the same day that all of those taxes on agricultural products going into France was brought in, de Gaulle passed over 450 pieces of legislature that effectively did the same thing. So, for example, here's the Danish butter coming into France, and it's arriving at the border, and the French are saying, oh, well, sorry, oh, butter, we've got to make sure that it's safe to eat and it's it's pure. So, oh, put it in that warehouse. And, oh, sorry, there's no refrigeration. Oh, and sorry, it's going to take us a year to get around to inspecting it, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, in, in other words, this idea that because there's a rule or a regulation, um, it makes it appear like you're doing something when, in fact, you're, you're finding other ways to skin the cat. And, and this is what's going on with all of these rules and regulations about environment. When you look at the EPA, what they're doing as bureaucrats, which is not voted on by the people. And that's another part of the whole uh, strategy what we've got now, bureaucrats are running the world. And the bureaucrats are faceless, unaccountable people. They, they literally control everything. 
And Mary McCarthy warned about this. Mary McCarthy said bureaucracy. Modern form the, of despotism. Yeah, the rule of the rule of nobody, the modern form of despotism. And that's what you see going on here. And of course, if you can control that bureaucracy, as Obama has been doing, as Maurice Strong did when he set up the IPCC through the World Meteorological Organization, if you can control things through, through bureaucracy, you can control without being accountable to anybody. And that was the comment that Maurice Strong made to Elaine Dewar when she said, look, you, you want to control the world. You want self-governance of the world, one world government. Uh, how are you going to do that? And he said, I'm going to go to the UN where I can get all the money I want, not be accountable to anybody. And that's exactly yeah. what's going on. And it reminds me of a quote from Aldous Huxley, the yeah. British author, specialized meaninglessness has come to be regarded in certain circles as a kind of hallmark of true science. And I love what British author G.K. Chesterton said, yep. the thing from which the world suffers just now more than any other evil is not the assertion of falsehood, but the endless repetition of half-truths. One of the stunning things in this document that we're talking about, and again, this was only released last week. Hey, Tim, we've got a solution. We're recommending climate mitigation measures and here's what we're going to do we're going to have planetary scale actions and you better jump on board with this people because after all it's the moral imperative this is again just stunning as some of their recommendations that i want to make sure people understand this here i'm going to go through this brief list here tim number yeah. one reduce worldwide carbon dioxide emissions without delay using all means possible to meet ambitious international targets for reducing global warming and ensuring the long-term stability of the climate. The other one is reduce the concentrations of short-lived climate warming air pollutants. Well, you know what those are. Mm -hmm. Ozone is mentioned, and here we go again with slow down this disastrous climate change. The next one, prepare especially the most vulnerable 3 billion people to a Adapt the climate changes, both chronic and abrupt. The next one, this is a good one. The Catholic Church can take a decisive role by mobilizing the public. Now, what that means, I don't even know what that means, but I'm sure it's very nefarious. So the Catholic role is going to take a decisive role by mobilizing the public. Now, this is interesting. They're going to implement... SDGs, that's going to be a new term, Sustainable Development Goals, and this is one of the recommended measures. We must find ways to protect and conserve as large as possible a fraction of the tens of millions of plants, animals, and microorganisms. They are now, I mean, they might as well just say plants and trees are more important than you here, so we have to do whatever it takes, and only through education. Now, this is a really interesting phrasing, but this is what they put, and this makes me think about implementing a forced abortion policies. It says, only through the education of women and children throughout the world are we able to attain a world that is just and sustainable why did they leave out men there tim <laughs> I, I i think that one of the things of course that um they exploit are people that they see as weak and vulnerable that's an insult to those people by the way um and and that's one of the things that uh, underlies all of this 
or at least they assume everybody's stupid, and therefore they can they can uh, uh, manipulate them. And and it's one of the great uh, one of the great fallacies of of socialism is that oh we're here to help to help the ordinary people when in fact they are the ones that get hurt the most. And and you see it going on in in the U.S. right now. It, it was ironic in, in before the um, you can Google this. There were three African Americans from Chicago. Uh, ironically, uh, they all have, or they're all convicted felons, um, but of course they are, they are the people that see the system for what it is of suppressing them. And they did three or four videos saying, look, um, it's, it's the Democrats, it's the left-wing Democrats that have got control. That, that they get all the money from the federal government in Chicago, and they've got big houses, and they've got wealth. And and the poor people are just as poor, and they're, they're and the poor people are killing themselves more than ever. This is the great fallacy of of it all. But um, just to flip back to that, what you just read about about the uh, that statement about CO two, and they're saying, look, well, we've got it. We've got to um, keep the plants alive and and support the plant growth and so on. But how are they recommending doing that? Well, they're saying, oh, well, we've got to reduce CO two. But CO2 is plant food. It's essential to the growth of plants. You go to a commercial greenhouse, they pump up to 1,200 parts per million of CO2 into the greenhouse, which increases the yields by a factor of four. So if you really want more plants and therefore more oxygen and more animals, then you should increase the CO2 level, not decrease it or hold it, le or hold it level. So there's this complete scientific contradictions in what they're saying. But, of course, that's what happens when you want to manipulate the facts for a political agenda, not, not the reality. So uh, I say when, when you look at all of the things that they propose, none of it bears any even minimal investigation. And, and that, that's, that's one ex example of it with the CO2. And I just published an article on uh, what's up with that as part of a brief that I was uh, involved with opposing the EPA's attempts to limit or control CO2, I said that we should try and get power of attorney on behalf of the plants. And every time there's any attempts in the world to legislate a reduction of CO2, we should vote on behalf of the plants to oppose that. <laughs> and, 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 and I mean, it, it sounds ridiculous, but it's only made ridiculous because of how ridiculous their proposals are. And there's an old form of argument, uh, Sheila, that called reductio ad absurdum. And it's a Latin phrase that means reducing to the absurd. And in, an, in a form of argument, it says, if you take something and can reduce it to the absurd, it was absurd in the first place. Okay, the, the thing is now the world's so absurd to, to start off with, it doesn't work anymore. And these people are making absurd arguments become reality. It, it's truly frightening. Well, and the other frightening thing is it's all back to the Hegelian dialect, essentially yep. problem, reaction, solution. They have this new world order strategy behind all this. They create the problem, there's a the reaction, and they come up with the nice little exactly. seemingly yep. benevolent solution. But it's yep. all very, very malevolent. We're talking about depopulation here. And Tim, what do you say for those folks out there that say, well, listen, you know what? We actually should depopulate the earth. The earth is growing far at a far too 
fast-paced rate. What do you say to those people, Tim? You know all about the yep. scientific piece of that. Talk about that. Well, of course, the, the first thing is that uh, w- when you look at the de- demographics, which has become, by the way, a, a discipline in universities, every prediction they've ever made has been wrong. They simply don't know. Partly, Part of the reason, of course, is we have no accurate data. I remember one of the things in, in my political geography class was the first week I, I would give two or three assignments. One of them was to determine how much oil there was in the world. And they discovered that nobody really knew, that everybody was creating numbers that suited their particular market or political agenda. And then the second assignment was, well, how many people are there in Nigeria? And they would all come back a week later with different numbers. And I said, well, how could that be? And the numbers ranged from 70 million to 150 million. Uh, If you look at the United Nations estimate of world population against the U.S. Census uh, estimate of world population, there's a difference of 5 million between the two numbers. That's more than the population of over 100 countries in the world. So to argue that, that you know what's going on and the world is overpopulated is, 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 of course, a complete myth. But the second part of it is that you're assuming when we look at, when we look at animals, that we look at things completely differently. So, for example, in, in agriculture, you look at a piece of land, say an, an acre of land or whatever you want, a hectare, and you say, well, how many animals could that piece of land support? In other words, what's the food supply, what's the the nutritional needs of the animal, and therefore how many animals can that piece of land support? The phrase for it is carrying capacity, all right? So what they're telling you is that the carrying capacity of the earth has gone beyond the limit, and that is so wrong when I tell you that every single year we produce enough food globally to feed 26 billion people. It gives, it gives you a rise to, to the fallacy. Now, what are the problems? Where's all that food going? Well, the answer is we don't have adequate storage and we don't have adequate marketing because politics controls it and dictates it and, and, and the powerful people uh, that we're talking about control markets um, if you go to India, one of the things that was who, who controls uh, the rice, China, the same thing. I mean, what China was doing uh, for decades was buying wheat from Canada at $3 a bushel and then making their people eat wheat when, in fact, they were a rice-based people. So they had to eat the wheat. They then took the rice that their own people were growing and selling it on the world market at $4 a bushel. So here was a socialist government practicing capitalism at the expense of their people. Yeah. And, and so, as I said, when, when you look at the carrying capacity of the earth, uh, it, we're not even close to it. And you can do all of the, uh, all of the calculations of it. I've done it. You, you can put people in a 1,000-square-foot house, which is a pretty good-sized house on average, um, on, on a 3,000-square-foot lot, which is a reasonable-sized plot where you can grow vegetables and food, and, put, uh, and then have roads and parks and and so on and and under those conditions uh, the whole world will fit into half of alberta 
the southern half of one province of Canada <laughs> that the whole world can fit. And, and, and so the idea, not, even Paul Ehrlich, you remember our friend, that great overpopulation uh, <laughs> devil? Good old demon, devil himself. Quietly and on the side, he admitted that the population of the world only occupies about 4% of the total land surface. Mr. I love depopulation yep. so much and i think i'm going to write a book with obama's handpicked science czar and we're going to talk about the importance of depopulation yeah yeah even Ehrlich admitted that off the record but that's what you find with so many of these people you see what what they're presenting to the world is a false face a false front because they want control and uh, they will avoid things they will lie about things I mean, read Solinsky's Rules for Radicals. I think it's rule number 10 that uh, end justifies the means. So if you have to lie to achieve what you want, that's what you do, which, of course, is so contrary to the whole concept of Christianity and, and the moral conscience. And it's I, not surprising it, it, that Saul Alinsky devoted his book to Lucifer. And it's not too, yep. by the way, Hillary Clinton said that Saul Alinsky was the most incredible mentor in her life. That tells you yep. something. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. By the way, the first rule is in, in Alinsky is that you get control of people's greatest fear and worry, and that is their health. Rules so for radicals. Just, yeah, number one. Yeah. Number one rule, you get control of the people by controlling their health. So the minute they have to come to you to, to survive, what's that all about? It's all about control. control. Oh, no, no, we're saving people, protecting them. But it's all, it, it's all about control. And, and, uh, and that, uh, of course, if, if you can control the physical person by uh, their health or by their fruit supply, then you can control the mental person. And, and, uh, and that, that's, of course, ultimately what it's about, is control of minds. This is one of the great transitions of the 20th century, where you went from Winston Churchill's recognition of two types of wars, that is, the wars of kings, where, where powerful landowners were fighting over territory, and the Magna Carta, of course, was about that. The Magna Carta, where they, the lawyers say, oh, no, it was all about freedom of the individual. And no, it wasn't. It was about the great big landowners complaining about a king that was not doing what they wanted him to do. Exactly. It had nothing to do with the individual. And so you went from the, the war of kings and where powerful people hired mercenary armies, people who were glad to have a job and have some food, uh, you hired mercenary armies, and they fought back and forth between each other. The peasants just tried to survive. And, and, and by the way, you, you want to see how that's carried over into today's world. When you go to the race course and you see a jockey wearing silks, as they're called, they're wearing a, a shirt that's a particular style and design. That's the same idea that the that these powerful landowners had their own mercenary armies and they dressed them in their shirts yeah. their silks that's the same idea carried into today's society but anyway um so churchill talked about wars of kings then he said the other wars are the wars of people where you've got these are civil wars of course and he said those are the most bloodthirsty those are the most devastating and you, you look at the statistics, more people died in the American Civil War, more Americans died in the American Civil War than died in the First World War and the Second World War and the Korean War combined. 
Stunning, isn't it? It's absolutely stunning. Now, what happened in the Cold War was that a whole new war set up, an ideological war. But the Cold War, of course, was simply capitalism against communism. What was that about? Well, it was, it was a battle between total control by the state or uh, virtually no control of, of capitalism. And, and, of course, that's why they equate capitalism with all oh, these powerful people are dictating and controlling you. So the, the Cold War introduced a whole new idea into human history, and that, that is ideological wars. And that's what we've been talking about today is, is, is this control of people's minds and therefore control of the people, the control of everything. And, of course, it made, it's made so difficult when you believe you're God and that you can control everything. That document you just read where they said, well, we've got to stop climate change. The arrogance of that comment is beyond belief. And to illustrate the point, two, two stories. You mentioned ozone. There was a proposal when there was supposedly a hole in the ozone, and there never was. And somebody said, look, why don't we generate ozone and pump it up into the ozone layer to fill in the hole? Simple calculations showed that to produce that much ozone, you would have to use every single watt of energy that humans produce in total to do that. It's laughable. And then you talk about, oh, we're going to stop climate change. There is at least the energy of 25 hydrogen bombs in one thunderstorm. In one thunderstorm. And look at the number of thunderstorms across the U.S. right now and the tornadoes. And somehow they're saying they're going to stop climate change. It, it, is, it is arrogance and, and conceit that only the devil could have. Well, you've ended on a good point because that's exactly what this is. Very devilish. Folks, if you've not got a copy of Tim's book, The Deliberate Corruption of Climate Science, do get it. It really connects some incredible dots. Bookmark DrTimBall.com. He writes for so many incredible sites as well. as He speaks all over the world and he really educates people and that is amazing. Tim, thank you so much for coming on the program today and come back and see us soon. Thank you, Sheila. Very happy to come back and and talk with you and and help people understand what's going on. Folks, that was Dr. Timothy Ball. Again, drtimball.com. It is linked there at weekendvigilante.com. I'm still getting quite a few people asking about the podcast. You simply go to weekendvigilante.com and click on Sheila's podcast. It will take you to the podcast and you just sign up and follow it. So that's very simple there. And also, if you want to listen on smart devices, download the MixLR app and you can listen live there. You just simply download M-I-X-L-R and search Weekend Vigilante and you can bookmark that as well. So folks, I just want to remind, I just heard from Chris Putnam and it looks like he is going to try to be on the show tomorrow. And then Wednesday, Dr. Danny Morano on an incredible teaching. It's a great week for guests. Folks, I just want to remind everybody that Remnant Roundup is a project that I'm working on. I am, I've got a lot of your emails regarding trying to connect with people in your areas. And I'm really trying to develop this at a minimal cost. So I really ask 
to get behind Remnant Roundup. It is under construction. I hope people do financially support that because of the quotes that I'm getting to develop this. I really do hope people support that. And I do hope that you become a partner of this ministry today, folks. This broadcast is 100% listener funded. And please, if you're blessed by the show, don't assume somebody else is donating. Please do what you can. There is a donate button there at weekendvigilante.com. Sewing is a kingdom principle. So please consider prayerfully financially supporting this ministry. I thank you so much for tuning into the broadcast and especially a big shout out to all the listeners there at Worldwide Christian Radio and at World International Network of Broadcasters, WINB. And thanks to all of you that tuned in from around the globe. Good night. God bless you.